So, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17 this morning. Wednesday night we did chapter 14, 15, and 16. And it only took us an hour and 40 minutes to do it. Somebody hung in there really well. So I decided this morning we would just do seven verses and kind of, you know, maybe not cover so much distance. But we do have some fascinating things. We're going to meet someone this morning that's one of the most interesting people in all of Scripture. I'm going to begin back a little bit here. 1 Kings 16, verse 29. If you want to follow along. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, um, we have them stacked up in the back. And so if you need one, you can either just wander back there and get one or even raise your hand up. I guess we can... Get one to you. Or yeah, they're all back there. First Kings sixteen twenty nine. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the thirty eighth year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty two years. Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. There were several. And they each got worse and worse and worse until it culminates in this wicked and evil Ahab. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... Before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerit, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kerit which is east of the Jordan, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Verse 7, it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. He was described as a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his waist. But he was also called the chariot of Israel. The prophet Malachi proclaimed him to be the front runner of Messiah the King, and we'll talk about how. And with the exception of Moses, more is written about him in the scriptures than any other prophet, even though he himself never wrote anything down. We have no scrolls, no writings from this man. And his name is synonymous with his mission. The time that this man came into Israel and and came into being and was called by the Lord, the mission that he has is exactly what his name is. It's pronounced Aliyah. Aliyah, or as we know him, Elijah. And it means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Why would that be synonymous with his mission? Because at this time, Israel was chasing after every other God it could find. And Ahab comes along, and one of the things that makes Ahab worse than any other king before him is that Ahab not only includes other gods in his worship of Jehovah, he completely gives up Jehovah for sole worship of the god Baal. He casts out God completely. And so Elijah shows up, his name Yahweh is God, that's the man, and that's his mission. He emerges as a bright light in some of Israel's darkest days. Ahab... We're going to see a lot of Ahab in the next several chapters. Was incredibly wicked, but if that wasn't enough, he married a most malevolent woman, the woman Jezebel, whose name is synonymous throughout history with wickedness and evil. She was at his side. They reigned in corruption over the northern kingdom of Israel. Again, attempting to replace Israel's one true God with the god Baal. By the way, it's a fitting name because when Elijah shows up, that's exactly what he does. He bails. We'll see that story next week. As with Moses, though, Elijah is a man whose whose exploits are the stuff of legends, but they're all true. It's not legendary, but it's absolutely amazing. He stops up the rain in the sky. And then he prays it down again three and a half years later. He raises a widow's son from the dead. He takes on 450 prophets of Baal in an epic showdown. You may remember the story. He calls down not rain but fire from the sky. And the Lord engulfs his offering. 
He does all this to prove that Yahweh is God. There is but one God, and Yahweh is Him. Elijah hikes up his cloak and he runs 25 miles over rugged terrain from Mount Carmel to Jezreel like a divinely inspired speed racer. And that's a grace. It's a single verse. In fact, over you can look at it in verse 46 of chapter 18 says, The hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. So he had met Ahab on the mountain, on Mount Carmel. And then Elijah went off and prayed as Ahab made his way to Jezreel. He's praying and praying and praying. He's there for quite a while. But then when he's done, he hikes up his jeans, as it were, and takes off running and gets to Jezreel before Ahab. It's incredible how he does this. I, I would have liked to see, in fact, there's so many things I think I've shared before. I want to see the DVDs when I get to heaven. I just Send me to the library. I just want to sit down and watch, you know, this guy Elijah go, you know, and, and land. Kind of like Forrest Gump. He just runs at incredible speed. He calls down fire from heaven yet again, frying two companies of 50 men each and their captains. He divides the Jordan River like Joshua before him and Elijah would after him. Not Elijah would, but Elijah would do it after he would do it. And when it comes time for Elijah to die, he doesn't die. He's caught up in a fiery chariot and brought straight to heaven. He's one of two Old Testament pictures we have of rapture. Of someone being caught up before they die. And it's an amazing scene. But just when you think this prophet's task is complete, just when you think the clouds are going to close and we won't see any more of him again, he shows up alongside Moses to encourage Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. Remember that scene? Peter, James, and John are there. Jesus is there. Moses and Elijah and Peter recognizes them. He's never seen them before in his life, but somehow in his spirit he knows, that's Moses and that's Elijah. And so he says, this is fantastic. Let's put up a tabernacle for each one of you, and we'll worship. And God's voice comes down from heaven, booming, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That is hugely significant. Because what the Lord was speaking in that moment was, you don't listen to the prophets, you don't listen to Moses and the law, you listen to Jesus. Because the law and the prophets are all there for one reason and one reason alone, and that is to point us to the person of Jesus Christ. This Elijah is an amazing man. By the way, the Bible also indicates he'll show up again. In another dark time for Israel. Oh, it was a dark time when Ahab was on the throne. But there's another time coming. Called the day of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation. When he will preach the one true God yet again. Calling down fire from the heavens. We'll talk about that in a few weeks as well. But for all this. My favorite description of Elijah. The prophet. The amazing man of God. Comes not from the Hebrew scriptures. But it comes from the book of James who writes in James 5.17, Elijah, listen to this, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He was a man, in other words, just like us. He could be sitting here this morning just like you. He, He could be relaxing here, Bible open, just listening, nothing special, nothing different about Elijah. He was just like us. He was produced of the stuff of earth and yet he was prepared by the Spirit of God to do mighty things. I tell you that because the greatness of Elijah's power is not found in his abilities, in his genes, or in some super saintliness. Elijah was just one of these weird guys who believed God. Full of strange people who are just far enough out there that they actually believe and trust that God does what he says he's going to do. That he means what he says and he says what he meant. He took God at his word. He trusted him. And whatever God said was good enough for Elijah. As 1 Kings 17 begins, we're introduced to the man, Elijah. We understand his mission. That is, Yahweh is God, his very name. But more important, we get an immediate and wonderful picture of the method that God uses to prepare him for his ministry. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about being prepared for ministry. This is not necessarily a lesson or a discussion about how you become a Christian, the early days maybe of your faith. It's how God prepares us and continues to grow us for the purpose of doing ministry, of serving, of functioning in in the church and, and in this world today. The method of God to prepare us for ministry. Let's pray one more time before we go any further. Father, I pray that 
like Elijah, who was a man just like us, that you would prepare our hearts for ministry as well. To receive not only your word this morning, but your method, Father. To accept who you are and in the difficulty and dark days that we live in, that we would see what you're doing in our lives. That we would receive, Father, and respond. And even when it's difficult, even when it's challenging or or hard on our own hearts, even when we don't completely understand why we have to be called out like we are, I pray that you would use whatever means necessary to prepare us and to, Father, compel us to ministry in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back and look at these seven verses, kind of pick them apart a little bit. Verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. That one verse is packed with information. Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah we know, Yahweh is God. Tishbite. The Tishbite means stranger. And truly he was. When Elijah burst on the scene, he's an unknown. He's a settler from Gilead. Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan. It's a rocky, difficult place. And he's with a group of people over there just trying to settle it. But he comes across, burst on the scene in Samaria, with powerful prophetic proclamation and no history. We haven't heard of Elijah before this. I don't believe even Ahab had heard of Elijah. This guy just shows up and begins to prophesy and immediately we see some things about Elijah. Number one, we understand that he is a lover of God. Elijah is a lover of the Lord because like any lover would be, he is jealous for God. He is passionate for the one whom he loves. Ahab and Jezebel, they are derailing the people for the sake of Baal. But Elijah says, the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Notice that's the very first thing out of his mouth. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Before whom I stand. Why does he start with that? Because people are trying to say Baal lived. Or Asherah lived. Or Molech lived. Elijah says, no. There is one God who lives. His first statement, again, is his name, is his mission. Yahweh is God. The Lord God lives. He's saying there is no other God. My friends, we need to proclaim this truth as much today as ever. There is no other God. There is no other way. There is no other Savior but our Lord Jesus Christ. There's one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus And this message is getting lost in the world. And we've got to be people who are willing to stand up and say, it is only through Jesus that you're saved. Have you seen the new Indiana Jones movie? Anyone gone to see that? It's a thrill ride. It's a lot of fun. You know, I enjoyed it. I'll tell you what, Harrison Ford is in amazing shape. The things he does, and I don't mean like, you know, that I find him attractive, but he just... The energy that he has in this movie, the way at the very beginning they're in this scene, I'm not going to give, you know, do a spoiler here for you, but they're in this warehouse with all these boxes and he, he just climbs up to the top of the boxes and, and I just, I was out of breath watching him do it. I was like, whew, it's going to be a rough movie, you know? I mean, it's, anyway, he's in, in incredible shape. I, I don't know if you've noticed this morning, but I'm kind of sidetracked. I'll try and stay on track. But in this movie, something happens and it just, it just bugs me. And I hope this doesn't ruin it for anybody, but it just bugs me that Hollywood has to go alien. It seems like every movie, when we get down to the end of it, it's aliens. I, I, we're about a fourth of the way through it, and I went, it's going to be aliens. It's going to be. You know, I like the Ark of the Covenant, because at least it was dealing with the one true God. You know, Even the Holy Grail, which you know is just the stuff of myth, but even the Holy Grail was still about the one true God. So I'm like, that's cool, because there's you know, power attached to the Lord. I like that. You have to go alien. Why is it that in almost every movie out there right now, Hollywood is going alien? And I'll tell you why. It's because Satan is trying to convince this world that there are other ways that we got here. That's the underlying message. We were not created by God. There's some other force. And you see, the world has gotten to the point where we have to admit there's some force out there. Science, even, is having to admit there's something that put us here. Oh, we don't want to believe in God or Jesus or that, but there's something. You know, we got evolution billions of years, but somewhere back there, someone seeded this planet 
And we grew as little saplings or something, but, but we came from something else. And so over and over, you're going to hear this message, and, and it's on the rise game. It was aliens from other planets. That's how we got here. We've got to stand up and say, no, I was created. I was created by Jesus. Book of Colossians chapter 1, look it up, says everything was created through Him and by Him and for Him. We were made by Him. And that's the message. And if you are a lover of God, as Elijah was a lover of God, hey, it is okay to get jealous when people are trying to point to a different lover, a different Lord, a different Savior, saying, no, there is one true God and His name is Jesus Christ. But notice this about the first verse. This is interesting to me. The Bible doesn't tell us that the word of the Lord came to Elijah until verse 2. In other words, Elijah may very well be acting on his own. Look at verse 1. He comes in there. He bursts on the scene to Ahab. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Okay, Elijah, I want you to get out of there. I don't know that God told him to say that to Ahab. Well, so he was acting presumptuously? No. Second thing to know about Elijah is he knew the law of the Lord. Elijah knew the law of the Lord. It was a time in Israel where the people of Israel were not reading the word. By the time we get to to Josiah's reign in 2 Kings 22, they don't even know where the Bible is. They don't even have a copy of the scriptures. In fact, one is discovered, a scroll of Torah law is discovered, and the people are amazed, and and Josiah is amazed, and he gathers the people and begins to read it to them, to re-proclaim the word. But by this time, if you wonder how the people got so confused, because they weren't in the word. They had no idea of it, no awareness of what the law of the Lord said. But I'll tell you something, Elijah was a man who was familiar with the word. This prophet of God was in the word ahead of time. How do we know that? Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 16 says, Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And listen to what he promised he would do. He will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you'll perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. And I believe Elijah knew this prophecy. And so it was easy for him, without even having the Lord telling him to go do it, he could go and say, the rain's going to stop. He had an incredible faith that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And he said, if you chase after other gods, I'm stopping the rain. I'm shutting off the valve. So Elijah is acting on the law. I also think Elijah had to be familiar with a a previous story, a story of Joshua. A very bold story where in Joshua chapter 10, you may remember the story, Joshua is fighting with all of Israel. They're fighting the enemy and he asks the sun, he calls on the sun to stand still so they have more time. And it says in Joshua 10.12 that Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, O moon in the valley of Aijalon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. See, guys like Elijah and guys like Joshua have no fear putting themselves on the line, getting out there on the limb for Jesus. Because they know what the Word says. And they trust that the Lord will do what He said He was going to do. That's Elijah. He just believed God would continue to do what He always did. So Elijah is a lover of the Lord. He is someone who knew the law of the Lord. And number three, Elijah was listened to by the Lord. James 5.16 tells us the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced fruit. And I believe that the reason why Elijah was so publicly powerful is that he was privately prayerful. You see, you can't take a stand for the Lord. You can't call on the Lord to do things in a public way unless you already have a relationship with Him privately. You can't pray that the Lord would act if there's no connection between you and the Father when you're alone. And that's really what He wants. Once you've given your life to Jesus, once you have salvation, the Lord's like, okay, now let's walk together. Again, that phrase, He says again and again to the kings, walk in my ways. Walk in my ways. He doesn't say, keep the, well, he says keep the commands and statutes. 
But he phrases it in relationship. Walk with me. Spend time with me. Know me. Pray to me when no one else is listening. Elijah, this man just like us, was a man who was listened to by the Lord. He loved the Lord. He knew the law of the Lord. Verse 2. And so the word of the Lord came to him. Don't miss this. Did Elijah go seeking after the Lord? Actually, what my Bible reads is the word of the Lord came to him. That God went seeking after him. And I, I point this out simply because the Bible tells us that the seeker is God. That the seeker is the Holy Spirit. Now that's not that we shouldn't be looking for God or pursuing Him ourselves. But the reality is Jesus said, John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And He's talking about Israel. But then He goes on and says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Now He's talking about us. And listen, He says, and they will hear my voice. They'll hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so Elijah, he stands firm and he powerfully calls out Ahab. He puts his life and reputation on the line. And then the word of the Lord comes to him. Then the word of the Lord seeks him out. The buzz is actually kind of getting old now. But the whole idea of being a seeker-oriented church. A church with a seeker focus. If you want to be a church with a seeker focus, then we focus on the seeker who is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Behold, I, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens up the door, I'll come in and we'll have dinner together. He is the seeker. And if we want to be a fellowship game that impacts this region, the best way to do it is not to try and change everything to be more easily palatable to the seeker. It's to focus more and more on Jesus Christ. The more we're focused on Him, the more He's going to draw people into a fellowship where the Word is taught, where the Spirit is active, and where people love each other the way God told us to. Verse 3. So after all this, the Lord says, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerit, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be when you drink of the brook, and I have commanded that you shall drink of the brook, I have commanded the ravens to provide food for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook Kerit, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and, would, and he would drink from the brook. This word, Kerit, Kerit, is uh, how you pronounce it, not Cherith. But I want you to imagine for a moment being Elijah in this situation. You've confronted Ahab with a powerful message. And Ahab is ticked. The king is incensed and the Lord tells you, okay, all right, get out of there. There's something almost comical about this. I don't think that Elijah got out ahead of the Lord, but I'm not sure that Elijah knew what kind of response he would get when he stood up. And he stood up, and now the Lord is protecting Elijah and saying, Okay, dude, great, you spoke, get out. Here's where I want you to go. I want to take care of you. I will provide for you. I will protect you in this place. So how does he say he's going to do it? Well, he says he's going to send, he's going to deliver Papa Murphy's, no, Papa Raven's pizza. And I know this because, look, it says that he's going to bring bread and meat. And that's pizza, right? The only thing missing is the sauce. Okay? So the ravens are now delivering the bread and the meat every morning and every evening. The ravens are. Now, I'm Elijah, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, Lord, have you really processed this whole thing? Have you thought this through? There's a famine on. And you're sending birds to bring food. Don't you think the birds are going to eat the bread and the meat before they... I mean, a bird's going to now fly to Elijah with bread in its mouth, and there's a famine. Which means the birds aren't getting much to eat either. But somehow that bread's going to get to me. Somehow that meat's going to get there. And ravens, I mean, ravens are carnivorous scavengers. They're going to eat it. That's what they do. I think it's a foul idea, personally. Sorry. Sometimes you just wing it up here, and I, I can't help that. If it ruffles your feathers, or you get in a flap, my, my apologies to you. But add this. Thank you. Thank you. Add to this the fact that in Middle Eastern cultures, both then and now, the raver is a harbinger of doom and death. This is what people believe about the raven. And when he shows up, that's not a good sign. Well, well, I mean, that makes sense because usually when the raven shows up, there's something dead around. There's some dead carrion that's lying on the ground somewhere rotting. 
And so the raven is this dark picture. And I think, Lord, how about sending a dove? <laughs> or a sparrow, or maybe a nice social finch. Something little and you know sweet. Not this big, black, dark, gloomy bird. It's probably going to eat the meat anyway. And furthermore, in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 15, ravens are, are listed among the unclean birds not to be eaten, which is difficult because if a raven, raven's bringing you know, a little bit of food and meat to me, and I'm getting really hungry, I'm thinking that bird plucking over a fire is going to be pretty tasty. But he was not to have even that possibility because of the law. I I point all this out not to be funny, but simply to say the Lord loves to deal with both the improbable and the impossible. He sets up scenarios, and this is one of them, that just don't make sense. Sending a raven to bring his food. That's silly. To you and to me, we wouldn't do it. We couldn't even train a bird to do that. And yet God says, let me do something that it makes it absolutely clear and obvious it's nobody but me that's doing it. Tell you a little hint. You want to see God work in your life, pray, follow Him, and do something that only He can do. Step out in a way that you know it is not by your power, it's not by your giftedness, it's not, not by your financial ability. It's the Lord. Do something impossible for Jesus because that's the realm in which He loves to work. And as Pastor Chuck Smith likes to say, and I love this phrase, where God guides, God provides. That's one thing you never have to worry about. By the way, when you're preparing for ministry or going into an area of ministry, you don't have to worry about how it's going to be provided for. All you've got to do is know that that's what the Lord wants you to do. And then step out and He will provide. But this is a time of famine. What, what if the brook that He's drinking out of, what if it dries up? Because in famine in Israel, when the rain stopped, the water stopped. In fact, right now in Israel, the Sea of Galilee, which is their primary freshwater source, it's their only freshwater source in the entire country, it's at the lowest level it's ever been. And they're a little concerned about it. So pray for rain in Israel. But what happens if the brook dries up? Verse 7, it happened after a while that the brook dried up. Because there was no rain in the land, and this is where God led Elijah. I'm going to send you this place over here, I'm going to provide for you. You know, bread and meat. You're going to drink water from the brook. And the moment God says that, I would think, okay, good, miraculously, this brook's just going to keep running, right? Through the whole famine. It doesn't. It dries up. Elijah watches this happen. At first it flowed well. He could just scoop right out of it and drink any time he wanted. But as the famine wore on, the wash became a trickle. And then a muddy pool. And then stagnant water. And finally a dry, cracked creek bed no water anyway great the bread and the meat are still coming but I don't know about you but i got to have something to drink with my meal pizza is not good without at least a Pepsi and God doesn't drop Pepsis from the sky you know, he doesn't provide the water and he doesn't provide any other means of drink it just dries up so Elijah's now sitting here and he's got to be thinking what's going on I put myself on the line for you you sent the raisins with the bread and the meat and that was cool but I'm going to die here if I don't have any water. And here's the thing I want you to see this morning. God is preparing Elijah for his ministry. You see, Elijah jumps out there and makes that prophetic proclamation about the rain and God immediately pulls him back. He does the same thing, by the way, with the Apostle Paul. Paul gets saved in an amazing way and then he disappears for three years. Paul said at one point, I believe it's Galatians chapter 1, that he's in Arabia. What are you doing in Arabia, Paul? Nobody knows. He was just there. You're going to see that that's the same reason, by the way, that Elijah is going to run to after his contact with the prophets of Baal. But in this case, three and a half years will go by. Elijah bursts on the scene, powerful prophet, and disappears for three and a half years. Now, personally, I wouldn't set it up like that. Now, with this kind of bursting on the scene, I'd make sure there was something immediately to follow it up. Maybe get a TV crew there to film the whole thing, you know, and to follow Elijah on his walk through the wilderness for the next three and a half years. God pulls him away in complete and utter quiet where no one is. An anonymity. And Elijah would learn a few things. And the first thing I believe he would have to learn when the, the creek dried up is restraint. Restraint. With angry Ahab to the west and nothing but dry desert to the east. There wasn't anywhere Elijah could go. His mission that started with a bang was immediately marginalized and sidelined, but effective ministry calls for restraint. 
It's one of the hardest things for us to learn because, man, when I know I'm called to a ministry, man, I want to burst out there. I want to do it. I want to see it all happen right now, today, immediately. And the Lord says, okay, I've given you the mission. You're my man. You're my woman. I've given you the mission, but but my method of training you is not what you might think. We're going to slow down the gears now that you know that you're called. After healing two blind men, I think this is interesting, Jesus the Bible tells us, Matthew 9, 30, 9, verse 30, sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows about this. Well, you just did a miracle, Lord. I mean, it seems like that would work to your favor for people believing in you. He says, Keep it quiet. Matthew twelve fifteen tells us, Many followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them not to tell who he was. Keep it quiet. Okay, I'm going to heal you here. But I don't want you to tell a soul. Then why did he heal in the first place? Because of his compassion. See, Jesus didn't come to this world to heal people. That may be a shock because he did so much of it. His ministry for three and a half years or three years was not supposed to be a healing-focused only ministry. It wasn't so that, that he could draw attention to himself by his supernatural power. Jesus healed people because he loved them. He healed people because he saw them in their distress. He saw that Israel was, was like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, man, I can't just leave them this way. But every time he healed someone, coming up to almost to the last point in the last week of his life, he would say, okay, shh, keep this between. Now, of course, nobody did. Of course, everybody went right out and said, heal me! While Jesus is going, no, keep it quiet. Why would he do that? Because of restraint. Jesus knew it was not his time. It wasn't the time. He was always keenly aware of the time and the timing of his ministry. John chapter 2 verse 1. In his first miracle, it tells us there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So they're just guests. They're hanging out at the wedding party afterwards and it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now Mary at this point had seen something. She knew there was something special about Jesus and she's trying to draw him out. How do you know that? Because of how he responds. He says, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Mary, back off. Restraint. It's not time for me to start showing the dazzling things. Of course, then he goes and changes the water to wine. It's the best wine of the whole party. Because he had compassion on the bride and the groom. Because he didn't want them to be shamed in front of their friends. But he was not trying to explode onto the scene with this magnificent ministry because the Lord teaches restraint. And that's important to remember. He may have put something in your heart or he may very soon put something in your heart to do ministry-wise for him. And the very first thing we can do in response is wait and pray. And say, okay, Lord, if this is of you, then do what you need to do to prepare me so that when I get involved in this ministry or this activity of some kind, I'm ready, and I can walk it out. It's at the end of his public ministry, literally on the night before his crucifixion, that John writes the following, John 13, 1, that before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What's the point? Timing is everything. Jesus knew the time, and he functioned in that perfectly. He knew when he needed to move, and he knew when he needed to fulfill his mission and his ministry. Gang, if Elijah had been allowed to move too fast in his ministry, we would have missed a miracle. And I think this is important to note. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 24, which we're not going to read right now, we're going to study it on Wednesday night, but it tells us how the Lord uses Elijah to miraculously provide for a woman way up in the northern remote region of Zarephath, which is Lebanon today, Gentile country. In a time where he's trying to regather Israel and focus on Israel, he sends Elijah up to Zarephath in this famine. Had Elijah done something else, had he been bursting on the scene, moving too quickly, we would miss this fact that Elijah goes up there to do something Jesus would grab hold of later to express a big picture. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Elijah, by showing restraint and following the Lord was then able to be used in the teaching of Jesus for something much more powerful even than how he provided for this widow woman. 
Jesus says in Luke 4.25, I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Zidon to a woman who was a widow. Now this incensed the people Jesus was talking to because what he was saying is, listen, God has had an eye on and a heart for the Gentiles since Elijah's day. You need to understand that. Now if Elijah had moved too quickly, Jesus wouldn't have had that example to use and to focus and to show us even today that God's heart was not just for Israel, but was for Israel and was for the rest of the world. That he was working out a much greater plan. We talk a lot about waiting here at the bridge. And truth is, some of the worst ministry mishaps, at least in my uh, experience, they occur because we say we got to move and we got to move now. we got to hurry. And we bought the land. How quick are we going to build? Restraint. Restraint. Let the Lord lead. So the Lord kept Elijah at the brook until every last drop was gone. And only then did the word of the Lord come to Elijah, which gives us the second lesson now. Remembrance. Remembrance. What continued to come to Elijah, even as the water was drying up, was the bread and the meat. And I think there's an interesting picture here. There are times where we may feel like the Spirit is drying up. Where we're struggling to hear from God. Where we're not getting any motion or any direction. But like Elijah, you always have the bread and the meat. You've always got the Word. It's always right there with you. Turn your Bibles over to Psalm 77 for a moment. Years ago I ran across this psalm. It's, it's become one of my favorites, especially for those dry times. Those, tri- those, those times when the brook dries up and I have no, no immediate sense of what God is doing. Psalm 77. Asaph writes this. He says, My voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and He will hear me. Too sure of it. <laughs> I added that part. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. In the night my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I'm disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. What's he talking about? Something's not working here. I'm crying out to the Lord. I am faithfully and committed. I'm crying out constantly. I'm saying, Lord, show me. Show me what to do. I need to hear your voice. Tell me what you want. And he's not answering to the point now that Asaph says it's disturbing. Verse 4, he says, You've held my eyelids open. I am so troubled I cannot speak. He can't even sleep anymore. He can't speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart. And my spirit ponders, Will the Lord reject forever? And will He never be favorable again? Has His loving kindness ceased forever? Has His promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? This is spoken by a man who has felt his compassion, who has experienced the Spirit speaking to him before, but right now he's not. And there's nothing there. Verse 10, he says, Then I said, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Human words, gang. Human words. God has changed. He's not for me like he used to be. Human words. God never changes. And then the psalmist writes, and this is so interesting, verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the prophets. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Oh, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deep also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here or there. The sound of your thunder was like was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters. And your footprints may not be known. And you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What is the difference at the end of the psalm from the beginning of the psalm? I'll tell you what it is. At the beginning of the psalm he's crying out and he's hearing nothing. 
the water's dried up. But at the end of the psalm, he is now eating the bread and the meat. He is remembering what God has done. The value so often, gang, of being in the Word is it constantly reminds us of a God who is at work in this world even when I don't see it. Even when I go days or months or sometimes years without hearing from the Lord and without knowing His direction, man, I've always got the bread and the meat to sustain me when times get difficult. Dry seasons. It's when the living water seems to be absent. I can still feed every day on the Word, the meat of Scripture. I can learn to remember what His Word tells me He did. You know, I say this, and some might disagree with me on this, but um, I remember when I was a kid. You're not going to disagree with this part, but when I was a kid, one of my favorite restaurants was Bob's Big Boy. I don't know if they ever had them in the Northwest, but they were big in California, and there was always the, the kind of the big, kind of tubby kid holding up a, a hamburger on the outside. You know, we got I got pictures of me and my brother standing by Bob. You know, he was an impressive dude. I don't think it would be in today's uh, you know fitness conscious world probably wouldn't be the best symbol in front of a restaurant because he was a little weighty. But Bob's Big Boy, we would go, and I loved eating there. My parents would take us, and we'd sit down there, you know, and we'd color and draw and, and stuff while the food was coming. And I never understood my, why my parents would not let me drink my soda. You can't drink your soda until the food comes. And I got older, I started to realize why. Because that, that, you put a straw in soda, that stuff disappears fast. And then the food would come, and these were in the days before free refills. And the soda was gone, so now i got to eat the food with, without the drink. And I think, I think, and I could be wrong, gang, sometimes the Lord determines to save the drink until the bread and meat come. Why won't you talk to me, God? I think he will remain silent just to say, Look, I want you to eat a little bit first. I want you to spend some time in my word. Be there and wait. Eat the bread, eat the meat, it will sustain you. And wait. And once you have begun to eat that, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to speak to you in a way that you'll understand. Why would he do that? Why would he make us go to the Word first and study and learn and read and meditate before he pours out his Spirit so that I won't go off imbalanced and uncontrolled in the Spirit, which happens a lot. So that I have a grounding in Scripture, a foundation on which to stand, so that I can recognize what the Bible calls strange fire. Bizarre activity that is not of God, but is of man and is of emotion and feeling. So that I'm well equipped that when God begins to pour His Spirit out, I know what's true and I know what's not. I can see it. Restraint, remembrance, number three. Refreshment. Refreshment. How can a dried up brook bring about refreshment? It can only as it points us to the one who brings refreshment who can alone slake our thirst. You may have heard the old saying, I'm sure you have, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. One writer adds this, you can give him some salt to make him thirsty. Might not be able to make him drink, but you can give him some salt, and that's what the dry brook does. When we're in the place of dryness, where God often takes us to train us in ministry, and we begin to get thirsty, then Jesus says, John 7.37, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I will satiate your thirst. And I will satisfy that hunger that you have. There is satiation and satisfaction only in our Lord Jesus Christ. I got an email last week, and I rarely do this, but I choked up reading it. It's from a girl who was in my youth group in California, uh, boy, 10, 15 years ago. One of my favorite students, and she was... She was a crack-up. I mean, she was just kind of wild and out there, but she loved Jesus. And, and I loved that about her. And she was the girl that she would show up on, on Wednesday night at youth group, and we'd all be sitting down, and we'd be in worship, and all of a sudden the door would burst open, and in she'd come with bags of McDonald's, you know. She'd come right up the front row, plop them down, and just start eating. You know, and I'm, I'm like trying to, what are you, what are you doing here? Did you bring enough fries for everybody? Oh, no. She was the one who, when we were in Mexico on a mission trip, we all go to this place called the Oasis, a little taco hangout. And at the Oasis, you go, you get your tacos, you eat everything, and then when you're all done, you go up to the counter and you pay for what you eat on the way out. And it's a big open-air place. We're on the way back from Mexico, coming home two days later, and she's laughing in the van, and she goes, Pastor Rick, guess what? I never paid for my tacos. 
We went to Mexico to build houses to help the people. And she's ripping them off. <laughs> well, what's the disconnect here? But, but you know what? She loved God. She loved God. And she was one of my favorite students, literally across 20 years of youth ministry. She was one of my favorite kids that I ever worked with. Here's, here's the email part of it. I'm not going to do all the, everything she wrote. She wrote, I have to tell you how very blessed I'm feeling right now. I happened to go to your church website in anticipation of seeing some Bible study lessons and what I found was so much more. First I listened to the songs and yes I cried. Don't know why I did, I just did. And then she says, then I started on in the first study through the book of Revelation. It took me back to a place I haven't been in a long time. As I sat and listened to the study, it began to become somewhat painful. Not your talking, of course, but the recognition that the young girl that once was so on fire for the Lord shows her face far too little anymore. I know you're probably thinking, how could I possibly feel all of this from one message? I guess it's because I enjoyed it or learned from it, and I wanted to listen to all of them tonight. No, I'm not high, just missing my old self. It's a hard thing to look inside myself and remember the passion and the drive and to know that right now it's not at the level it used to be. I often ask myself, how could I have let it slip away? Or what happened? Especially being a mom and knowing how I want to raise our kids. She writes, pray for me. Pray that I'm filled with the desire I once had and the world sees it. Pray that I'm an example to others. And lastly, pray that I let go of hurt and anger and forgive as Christ forgave me. I mean, that just, it broke my heart and it thrilled me at the same time that, that maybe God is, is, is drawing her back. You adults know how many of us as teenagers love the Lord. How many of us, and I know it's not everybody, but so many found an excitement or a passion in a youth ministry or, or with the Lord. It was just great. And we thought in those days, this is going to be my life. And then life starts to happen. And even since starting the bridge, I've met more adults who are coming back to the Lord, who had that kind of experience, who thought they would never wander away. So many of this girl, so many guys just like this, who had at one time a passionate relationship and feel like at this point, I just can't get back there. Besides, as Satan would whisper, you were just a kid. You know, that was then. you got to deal with real life. And I believe that the Lord brings us right into the dry brook. The difficult places where we're not getting answers. Where life is not working out, even though we work so hard to make it so. So that we would learn restraint, yes. And that we would begin to remember what He did before. But then we can find refreshment and re recommit ourselves. Knowing that refreshment only comes through Jesus. It only comes through Jesus. You can get away from it. You can work hard. You can find other things to try and satisfy. But ultimately, it all comes back to Jesus. Life is dry without Him. Peter said in Acts chapter 3, verse 18, The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He promises He will refresh you. He promises that though the brook is dry, there's not a drop in it, He is going to bring water, living water, the water of His Holy Spirit. He promises. And I for one believe Him. It's no accident that Elijah was sent to the brook Karit, so early in his ministry. Karit means the cutting place. The cutting place. It's where God cut the pattern for Elijah's faith. It's where Elijah cut his teeth on the methods of the Lord. It's where we see if Elijah can be the man he was cut out to be. Karit, the cutting place. Because the cutting is always part of the calling. There's always a cutting before the conquering. There's always a brook Karit before there's a Mount Carmel. Before you can stand up to the forces of darkness, before you can stand up and do amazing things for God, there is a brook Karit that he brings us to. So at the beginning of Elijah's ministry again, he was tucked away for three and a half years. It was 40 years for Moses in the desert of Midian. It was over a decade for David. 
It was, as I said before, three years for Paul. And that's God's method for training in ministry. It's never flashy. It's rarely public. Sharon sent me an email just the other day, this last week. A friend of hers was looking into a church in Southern California, and so she sent me the website. And I went to the church, and the first thing you see when the website opens up is a picture of the pastor. <laughs> you know? Kind of that... Well, I won't say his name, but kind of like a pastor that I'm thinking of. There's just a big smile, you know, and, and dressed in a suit and, you know, leaning forward. I mean, he could have been in the JCPenney fashion ad. I mean, it was perfect, you know. <laughs> and then it goes on to talk about all of his accomplishments and successes and everything that he has done and, and the wonders of, of his ministry background and the fact that this guy says he's great and this guy says he's great. And, I mean, a whole paragraph about the wonders of this man. And I wrote back to Sharon and I said, please, if ever our website shows me in that light, shoot me and send me home. Because that would rob me of the rewards then. Jesus says, if you want your rewards now, that's all you're going to get. Or you can work humbly and quietly where God calls you to and look forward to His rewards. And so God trains for ministry. Even in the silent times, remember his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But Elijah was a man just like us. Produced of the stuff of earth, he was prepared by the Spirit of God. And by the way, this doesn't just happen at the beginning of preparation for ministry. It happens again and again and again. God will, in your life, call you back to the brook Karit because there's something else he wants to do. And so don't fret, don't worry when the brook is dry. Don't fear in those difficult times. Don't freak out. Don't claw the ground looking for drink in muddy, stagnant water. Come back to Jesus. Wait at His feet. And if you, by the way, have never come to the Lord before, Revelation 21.6, Jesus said, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water, the water of life without cost. And Revelation 22.17 says, Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, let him come. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful, and it cuts to the heart. Father, I know that there are some here this morning among my brother and sisters who are at the cutting place. Life is dry right now. I know, Father, there are some who know they were called to a specific ministry but are wondering why nothing's happening. Father, give us patience and help us to pause And possibly, Lord, just to take this season of time to drink of the living water who is Jesus. Lord, I ask that you will prepare the hearts of everyone in this fellowship for ministry, whether it's involved here at this church or off somewhere else. That's really inconsequential, Father, whether we do ministry here or or elsewhere. Whether it's ministry for this particular church or ministry in the workplace or in a mission field or even for another church, Lord. I pray that you would prepare our hearts and call us that we might each one individually be a part of your greater kingdom and the preparation for your coming. Take us to the brook Kareed, Father. And grow us up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.